Hello, I'm Lily Head and I'm here with Abby Greenhoff, my sales director, and today we're going to discuss uh, the key features of how to prepare your practice for a sale. Um, it's worth remembering that you don't have to be at the point of sale before you take on board any of our recommendations here. Uh, we work with many clients who have annual appraisals of their practice's worth in the sort of five to seven years leading up to that big moment. But today we're going to share with you some key features that point you in the right direction of what's best to get in place initially and what's best avoided to save unnecessary delays and issues later on. So they're time-saving tips. And we're going to start off, Abby, first of all, with discussing really how best is it to prepare my practice to take it to the market? I just want to take just a little step back because you may be in your practice having a bad day or you're maybe starting to get a little bit tired or you're thinking about something else you'd rather be doing or you know you may be enjoying your dentistry but you, you know you, you need to be looking for some sort of endpoint at some time it can be that first thought it can be quite a daunting process really to start to look at preparing your practice to sell but even to think about retirement or think about selling your practice it's a daunting process. I mean, quite often people have been in practice for, you know, 20 years. They've been going to and from the same building with the same people, with the same patients for 20 plus years. And, it, you know, it's a big part of your life, your health, your well-being. And the thought of maybe stepping away from that and what I'm going to do after I've sold can be a really scary and daunting. Life daunting, beyond dentistry, yeah. as we talk about, don't we? Yeah. And I think that you know, the earlier, you, even if it's just a thought or even if it's just a curiosity, just starting to have those conversations and starting to not bury your head in the sand and not ignore it is a good place to be because any exploration you do, any fact finding, any planning doesn't mean that you're committed to going now. It just means that when the time comes, you're more prepared, you're more ready. At some point, a sale is on the horizon. What would be the first steps that you take to, you know, practical steps to get yourself ready? Okay, well, obviously preparation is key and you need to have a good indication of what kind of due diligence that you're going to be required. So that ties in with us and our recommendation that you speak to a dental specialist solicitor. We actually provide um, a recommendations of leading dental solicitors and accountants in the UK to help our clients. But you need to have those initial conversations to find out exactly what is required of you so you can start to get all that ready. So you need the planning with the due diligence. You need to think about who's going to be helping you find all this because otherwise there's going to be a lot of crawling around on cupboards and pulling out drawers at midnight. <laughs> and obviously you can work with somebody that you can rely upon to discreetly help you get all this information together. But of course you will already have to hand a lot of this information with um, your plan manager who will be working with you and all the audit tools. So hopefully none of this should be too much of a shock, but there will be items on there that you won't have a clue where they are. So you need to pre-plan to make sure that you can find uh, Legionella certificates, um, asbestos reports, EPC reports, things like that that need to be brought up to date to be absolutely critical. Because one of the problems of a sale languishing on is drip feeding information, not having the information to hand, and obviously communicating well. Having a dental specialist solicitor, that again, I can't stress enough how important that is, talking to you and don't drip feed them the information. Give them the information they require in a timely manner into drop boxes, which is very popular, and so that they can actually get on with 
collating the bundles of information, getting them across to the other side. Now, another area that causes great delays is CQC. Uh, people leave it too late. And I know that you have a, a couple of good examples recently, don't you, Abby, where the CQC was submitted too late and incorrectly. Um, let's talk about the impact of CQC in a sale. Well, a CQC registration takes, on average, I would say about 10 weeks. So it's critical that you submit that at the right time. If you do it too early, they may make you withdraw it. So then you have to do it again. So timing is everything. But even more important than that is that you get the right registration. So the registration that you have applied for has to match the way you're going to trade or the way you're going to buy the business. So if you're buying the business with a company that you've newly formed, your registration will be in the company name. If you're buying a practice um, in your sole name and you're going to be trading as a sole trader, you will have a whole new provider application in your whole own name. Um, if you have a NHS practice and it's in a partnership, that's a whole nother story because you have to have a partnership registration. So what you can see is there's plenty of margin for error and timing is everything because more than like, well, definitely a bank to release funds to buy a practice. One of their conditions before they do that is that they can see the certificate of the, the right registration to match who they're lending to. So it's absolutely important that you do that. We have um, ourselves experts in CQC who can guide you through what to apply for and when to do it. Um, but also there's other providers out there and we always really recommend for a, that actually somebody goes to an expert because it's quite easy to get it wrong. Let's talk about transaction fatigue, Abby. It's a subject that obviously crops up with regularity. Um, transaction fatigue is when a sale has just gone on that little bit too long. Everyone's starting to get a little bit tired, a little bit bored with each other, a little bit of niggly can creep in where I've sent you that information. And as we know, the longer a sale is protracted, it gives people a better opportunity to start getting a little bit resentful about the sale, whether it's the buyer or the seller. So one of the biggest challenges we have in our role is not just finding the right buyer for a seller, getting them the best price, that's all a given, but it's getting the sale over the line. And transaction fatigue can be too common. And the key issues I feel, and I'm not sure what you can add to this, is it's about poor communication and it's about people not being prepared to perhaps be reasonable in certain facets of the sale transaction where you need to just take a bit more of a view. Absolutely, because for a deal to get over the line, it has to have mutual benefit on both sides. Um, and that's our role. We're there to represent the seller and broker the absolute best terms. But it's also important to realise if you're selling, you're the seller, it needs to have some equ equitable benefit for both parties to make any deal get across the line. I wanted to just go back to what you were saying earlier, Lily, um, about things that you can do, which is going to actually make sure that you're not going to have any stumbling blocks later. Um, I've seen lots of examples of this where people have put their practice to market and maybe they've got a limited company and they've got assets or property within it, which they have to work with their accountant to take out before they sell because they're selling the company. So it's really, really important to involve your accountant early and actually confide in the people that you work with that your plan is to sell, whether that's two years, three years, five years time, so they can 
make you make sure your accounts are presented appropriately but also they will need to um, maybe feed into whether you decide if you've got a company whether it's an asset a share sale if there is any you know tax implications about the way that they sell that business um, or so it's really important to get your accountant involved early because they're going to have to have input into the legal documentation for the sale. At what point in the sale would you, for example, talk to your plan consultant if you're thinking of selling in, say, perhaps the next year or two? I would say it's never too early to have discussions. Discussions don't mean you're committed to selling. So have discussions and see how people around you can help. And one of the key people to go to is your, you know, your Simply Health consultant or your plan consultant, because first of all, buyers want to know that you are banding your patients. So when they take over your list, your goodwill, that they are appropriately banded in the right place. Um, they can also help you think about other ways that you can prepare and tools that they may have in their toolkit. You know, so audit tools for compliance, so you can make sure you've got the right documentation, the patient journey to sort of make sure that when the first impression of your practice for buyers is good um, and you can look at, you know, other things that they have in their toolkit. So really, I would say early and don't feel afraid to do that because the more people that you can explore, discuss, can help you and they will hold it in confidence. You know, the, the, often the fear is, isn't it, that it, word will get out yes. that I'm selling. But um, I think it, you're right. I think yeah. they have to have confidence mm. in their trusted mm. plan consultant. Mm. And, and, and it's surrounding yourself with a trusted team of advisors. And if you have the right team around you, and that's where we help our clients often, then they don't feel that they're doing this on their own. And it takes away a lot of the pressure and a lot of the stress. Um, I get frequently asked when I go and meet clients, when should I tell my team? When should I tell my staff? And often I've had to urge real caution and rein them in. Um, my advice is obviously there'll be someone in the practice that you'll talk to, probably the practice manager, often have been working with them for 20, 30 years, or maybe their wife, their husband, their partner, what have you. But at the early stages, it's not advisable to tell all the staff, unless you're one of those rare principals that has such an open relationship with all their team that they all talk about everything openly and joke about when are you going. But remember, of course, that a lot of our clients don't sell in their 60s. They're selling in their 30s and 40s and 50s. Many people sell their practice and we broker sales where they stay on for 10, 15 years. So don't rush to tell your support staff because it's a long way between finding a buyer and actually getting that over the line. So you really don't want to unsettle them. We advise you tell them when you're well down the line, maybe sort of month five or six, or you're close to exchange of contracts. And then it's a good time to introduce them to the buyer and basically make them feel safe and that they are secure and that they're very much part of the ongoing success of the business. They're a very valuable asset. I often say to principals, actually, your support team, your staff, your practice manager are more valuable in a way than your associates because they've worked here for many years and they know your patient base inside out and they're going to be the biggest help to you to get this practice moving forward in the future. Mm -hmm. So they are the last people that any buyer coming in would want to get rid of. Mm -hmm. So they're very, they're very much wanted and they need to be reassured, but it's best not to unsettle them too early on in the process. We are now thinking about preparing our practice for sale. It may be in six weeks, six months, or two or three years. What is the advice that you can give to members about how to make your practice more attractive to a buyer? So take off your 
your owner's goggles and put on your, your buying vision goggles. What are the kind of things that people that are looking for in a practice, not just financially, but aesthetically? Let's talk about ways to enhance your practice. First impressions really, really do count. Um, when your buyer walks up to that door on the first day, you know, they'll be looking at the, the condition of the front of the building, if there's weeds growing out of the the windowsill or something, it's not a great look, you know, because if something's well maintained, it gives you the confidence that it's well run, well led, well looked after. Um, so first impressions really do count. So try and sort of step away, like you say, you like you quite said about being your owner, because you get used to the things that you see every day, don't you? So go through a patient journey and actually step back and look, what does this look like? Maybe looking at freshening it up, decluttering, um, lighter colours or something that makes the practice, the first impressions really count. And, you know, your buyer will be going to potentially drilling into everything they can find out about this practice. So they will be mystery shopping. They may get a friend or themselves to ring up the practice as an inquiry. So they want to know that, you know, that it's warmly received, professionally received. So they'll be looking at your your website. Is that, you know, they look on page not found or it's out of date, yeah, those kind point, of things. Abby, yeah. so it's really about good housekeeping, isn't it? And making sure that that first impression, because the first impression is generally what somebody takes away and remembers most. And you, you mentioned the website, which is great, but also signage. I mean, I often go to find clients and although I know where I'm going according to a postcode in a sat-nav, when I get in the street, there's no visibility of that practice. Either the sign is hidden 10 foot deep in a laurel hedge or it's a tiny little plaque that you only know you're there when you're up and peering and knocking on the door at eight o'clock at night. So I think investing in some prominent quality signage, obviously you have to conform with local authority you can't put a neon throbbing sign up at the side of the road but good quality signage to attract pavement and drive by appeal as they call it so people know you're there it raises the profile and the awareness of the practice and these are all little changes that you can make so as well as aesthetically keeping the, the building in good order making sure obviously the premises in good repair which will come on to shortly under property um, and you touched upon social media you're quite right with websites but also um, Facebook. Now, some principals I meet, they the word Facebook and they shudder. They, they either can't stand it, don't understand it and have no intention of doing it. But they don't have to do this. They can assign this to someone in the practice that is uh, proficient and would like to be brought on and do some training. As long as it's managed professionally and handled in a professional way, it's a superb tool and at no cost to raise the profile of the practice. And as long as you keep it with positive, good news stories, perhaps charity events that they're doing, testimonials, it's a very good way to promote the practice and raise the awareness of what's going on locally. And it, it does really does lift patient statistics, so it's proven. So invest in looking at the social media aspect. You don't have to do it yourself, but you can often there's a trusted team member that would like to be given that responsibility to do that. Um, it just has to be governed properly. That's the most important thing. I wanted to pick up with a couple of recent sales um, where there's delays happened is when you were talking about staffing. Often we're taking practices to the market that have been established. The same people are working there for 20, 25 years and they get a bit further down the due diligence and the discoveries made that maybe staff haven't got the DBS, the Disclosure Borrowing Services checks in place. Um, or there's so 
really it's making sure that even though you don't hold the certificates, you've got a record that those have been done for all your staff. That can cause delays because they take a few weeks to to put together. And quite commonly, we, we, we sit down with principal dentists, don't we, that have maybe not got any associate contracts in place. Yes. And, you know, the problem is if you don't do them early, you'll find yourself right up to the end of the transaction going in, waving a contract under their nose and they're yeah, you know, well, wondering what's going on. And so, this is the wrong time yeah, to do it, yeah, you know, so because sometimes um, you, do, you may not get the cooperation them quite as well. Um, you're absolutely right. And this ties in with our recommendation that you speak to a dental specialist solicitor. And it's never too early. I, I really can't stress this enough because these are the early questions that they will look at for you. They'll review it for you. So, and we do see on occasion practices where they've been partners or expense share partners for years. But when I say, do you have a copy of your partnership? You know, do you, does he have or she have first right of refusal to buy? And what are the terms? Well, it was all done on a handshake. Well, that was 30 years ago, but things change and sometimes the relationships change between partners. So a solicitor will be able to advise you what you need to have in place because you also can't sell on the goodwill of perhaps surgery income when there's no contract in place. Nothing's actually been formalized. So get all your ducks in a row, get yourself ready. And with the staffing, make sure, as you say, they all have an appropriate contract in place because any buyer coming in will expect to see these in place. So, you're a principal, you're thinking about selling, you're getting all these preparations in place, you've had a valuation done, uh, you've engaged your broker and the practice is either being marketed or it's been sold and you're now in the due diligence process and you may have a sale that's on target for completion in say six or nine months time, all being well. One of the biggest things that we urge all our clients to remember is, in a nutshell, keep your foot on the gas. Don't start to think, well, it's okay, I've sold now, and start to just drop your clinical work times because the longer a sale goes on, that the last moment in the transaction, you are going to be asked to produce up-to-minute management accounts. Or if the sale has really gone on, they're going to ask for a fresh, fresh accounts are going to be coming in. Now, any decline in the turnover will then cause, obviously, issues and potentially opportunity for a buyer to renegotiate the sale. And that's the last thing that we want to see happening. So... Let's talk about a recent example that you had, Abby, of a sale where this exact thing happened and what was the implications for our client? Um, working on the numbers, the sale was agreed at about 630,000 um, and the transaction was progressing. It's taken about seven months um, and as part of the last you know, inquiries, the buyer asked to see the latest turnover figures to see what was happening in the practice. And it actually um, came to light that the practice income had gone down by about 12%. Um, so we had to step in at that point just to try and present the best case for our seller. There were some valid reasons, you know, sort of operations, ill health, but there definitely was a kind of a mental shift from the moment they agreed the deal and they had the mentality that it's not mine anymore and you could see you know the the monthly income dropping off and the actual result was that they had to sit down and we had to negotiate to get the best outcome and the you know the price was reduced by i think about 50 or 60,000 overall um which is not what you want at the last minute let's talk about legal obligations in a sale so we've touched upon get a solicitor on board and you don't have to um, engage a solicitor immediately. You can have a conversation with a solicitor 
and decide who you'd like to work with maybe a year before you actually start to actively start this whole process. But you need to understand who they are, who you like, what are their fees, because they want some information from you as well. You can't just hit the ground running at 100 miles an hour. So let's assume that they've got a solicitor in place. Now, what kind of information are they going to require from you? We've talked about associate contracts, but let, there's the property element of a sale that we haven't discussed yet, which is very, very important because this is one of the biggest issues in delays. One of the biggest causes for problems can be around property and leases. Absolutely. Um, the value of your goodwill is intrinsically linked to the security of the property. So most buyers, if we talk about a typical buy, most buyers are looking to raise finance to finance their purchase of the goodwill. And they, the banks will lend to a maximum period of 15 years. Um, so what a, what a buyer is looking for and what the banks, more importantly, are wanting and stipulating is a minimum period really of about 15-year lease. Sometimes they're a bit more flexible, it's 10 years, but really they want a 15-year lease. Because what that means is that buyer is able to spread those payments over that time, which makes it more serviceable, makes it more viable. And also um, anything shorter than that, you know, like five, three, four, five years means that they're going to have to find premises in three years time, which they might not be able to find. The buyer then has got a huge amount of capital expenditure to fit out a new place. You know, you're talking, you know, £200,000 plus, depending on the amount of building work or the size of the business. So it really, really, really is important if you are a current tenant to get your solicitor to review your lease. So and you either look to get an extension, so it can be assigned to the new buyer with sufficient length, or um, if, you know, sound, if you've got a good relationship with your landlord, sound out if they're willing to grant a new lease for somebody when you do come to sell. So you've got that bit sort of ring-fenced and secured? Yeah, well, I mean, we had a, an issue recently, I know, with a, with a sale where the, our client had hoped and assumed that his landlord would be willing to, as he'd said, renew the lease. Unfortunately, at the 11th hour, there was a change, the shifting of the goalposts. And so really, um, you know, one needs to get some kind of confirmation in writing, the landlord solicitor, try and get some commitment from them so that they fully understand what is required of them, because that can really scupper a sale if at the last moment, a lease that was promised or you'd assumed and hoped would be renewed at terms that were acceptable are not. And so it's out of their control, but they need to be really corralled in as best they possibly can with leases um, because the banks will require this anyway. And nobody will take on a property that's got a 20 year lease with no breaks mm -hmm. because they're committed to pay that come what may. So they have to be breaks and rent reviews at sensible periods of time. And your solicitor will talk you through what's acceptable, what is industry norm and what is not acceptable. The Landlord and Tenants Act, all these things are there to protect you as a buyer and as a seller as well. Um, talking about freeholds, obviously, as you've touched upon, the banks prefer to lend on that. But if you are a freehold owner, if you own the premises and the, in principle you're willing to sell it, this is a good time to get the premises in order, to make absolutely sure. If you have a, a feeling that the roof is in need of repair, um, don't ignore it. Don't put your head in the sand and think, well, I'm, I'm selling it soon, it's not my problem. Because a full a structural survey will be paid for by the buyer and it's a, not an insubstantial amount of money and you know they will be going into every nook and cranny in those premises and flagging up any areas that are at risk and are going to be expensive to repair. 
Um, I know that we've had a Japanese knotweed drama, didn't we? Uh, <laughs> and that's another one that we laugh about. But trust me, it's a big problem, isn't it? So yeah. you need and in to... the lender's eyes. Well, absolutely. Yeah. It was a big no. So we had to rem- We did get round it, but it, had to, it took time and money to resolve. Um, so premises is also a big factor. Get your building in good repair. Um, make sure that, you know, don't re- completely redecorate. You'll never get that return on investment. But make sure that the windows, the chimney, the roofs, the tiles, whatever the, the fabric of the roof is, get them all in order because nobody is going to buy your premises and then be expected to fork out 10, 20, 30,000 pounds a year later. That makes a huge impact on their business planning. Like cash flow. Yeah. Absolutely. And they all have factored in some of this, but it is your responsibility as the, as the freeholder to get all those things in order. But again, talk to your solicitor and find out what are your legal obligations regarding the premises. Um, if it's a lease, obviously it may be a full repair lease. But again, there are certain caveats within that that mean that you have to get them in order in the first place. It's not an opportunity to pass it across to someone else and make it their problem. So getting all these things in place makes a huge difference to the timeline and also having a smooth sale mm-hmm. transaction without mm-hmm. ill will. Yeah, because if you try and ignore it and have tunnel vision and ignore it, it the the buyer will have their own independent survey. Their solicitors and all their advisors will be telling them to do it. So it's going to come out, but you want to deal with it early. So it's not yeah, a problem absolutely. later. Absolutely. Good. I agree. Thank you very much. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this um, webinar on how to prepare your practice for sale. Um, I think the key learnings from it are please prepare early. Never be afraid to get advice. Talk to specialists, a dental solicitor, an accountant. Get regular valuations. Um, You don't have to be at the point of sale to get a valuation in. By all means, we provide many for clients annually. So start to get a feel of the value of your practice. And then when you are ready, you are poised to be able to do a comprehensive, fully covered sale from start to end to avoid any unnecessary delays. Because they will naturally be ripples in the water. But our aim is to help our clients navigate through as smoothly as we can so that the sale goes through in the best timeline with as few dramas as possible. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.